The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. So this morning we take up these uh, incredible 10 verses at the end of Matthew 11 where Jesus, uh, to just break it up into two pieces, Jesus denounces the wicked and he makes a declaration to the weary. So he denounces the wicked cities as you saw as we read in the first couple of verses there. Woe to you, uh, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. So he's denouncing or rebuking these cities And then he goes and he makes a declaration to those who would come to him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. So we know as we've been walking through the book of Matthew that Jesus has been doing these incredible works all in these different cities that he has been traveling through. He's been going through the land of Israel, uh, healing, incredible healing. There's nobody that has come to him that he has not been able to heal. There has been no demon-possessed person that has come to him that he has not been able to cast out that demon. He has even raised a little girl from the dead back to life. So as we've been tracing through this incredible book, we've been seeing all of these different miracles that he has done over and over. We have seen what, again, is on the screen behind me, the authority of our king. We've been tracing that right on through these 11 chapters. Over and over, without disappointment, Jesus proves who he is, that he is the king. Even within the last couple chapters, he has, he has preached the good news of the kingdom. You remember at the end of of chapter 9, he uh, says that as the Lord of the harvest, he says, pray the Lord of the harvest will send out more and more labors into the harvest field. Those, the harvest fields were ripe. They're ready. They're ready to be plucked. They're ready to be picked. And so the Lord of the harvest, he stands there and he tells his disciples, pray that the Lord will send out more and more labors into the harvest field. And so right on the back end of that in Matthew 10, that's exactly what happens. The the disciples are are commissioned by Jesus to go out into the harvest field and to begin harvesting for the Lord. He gives the disciples authority as well. So he himself, as the authoritative one, the one with all of the authority, gives it to his own disciples. And so then his disciples go throughout all the towns of Israel, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing people, even raising the dead, doing all of the things that we've seen Jesus done. He has given his disciples the authority to do as well. Last week, you remember that in spite of all the things that he had heard, John the Baptist was discouraged. He was in, he was in prison. He was in prison for about a year. You can imagine the harsh conditions that it would have been, his disappointment and, and being confused and all of the things that he thought the Messiah was going to be and all the things that he thought the Messiah was going to do. So from prison, he sends two of his disciples to Jesus to just simply ask him, are you the one that, was, that is supposed to come? Are, are you the Messiah that we have been long expecting? And Jesus clearly indicates in his response to John, look at my deeds. The, the lepers, they've been cleansed. The dead have been raised. The blind have their sight. So yeah, am I the one who's to come? Well, it's pretty obvious in what I have done. And even in the preaching of the good news of the kingdom, it all proves that Jesus is who John was hoping that he would be. He is the one that, the, that Israel has been long waiting for. So as we come into this morning's passage, beginning of verse 20, we see that the towns where Jesus had done uh, incredible miracles, his most mighty deeds, they have refused him. 
They were refusing to repent. And so thereby refusing to repent, they were refusing Him as their Messiah, as the Christ. They may have found some value in His works. I think we all would, right? I mean, if somebody came and was doing all these incredible miracles and claiming to be the Messiah, we would, wow, there's a lot of value in that. And so they would have seen some kind of value in the fact that He could heal those who they brought to Him and all of that. But they didn't find the value that they were supposed to find in Him, right? So sure, he could, he could do some miracles, but they, and, and they might have liked that, found value in that, but they didn't find value in him, which is where all of the value is. If you don't find value in Jesus, but you think some of the things that he did were cool, well, you've missed it. You need to find value in Christ, and they have completely missed that. And so without apology, Jesus begins to denounce these cities. Look at verse 20 again. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Why? Because they did not repent. So Jesus begins to rebuke these cities. These places where he had spent a lot of his time. The text says that these were cities where Jesus had done most of his mighty works. Not, not some mighty works, not a few mighty works, but most of his mighty works had been done in these time, in, in these towns. Now that has to give us a little bit of, that has caused us to step back and say, well, well that's weird. That, that's strange. If most of his mighty works had been done there and they don't see him as who he is claiming to be, I mean, he is, he is the Christ. He is God in the flesh. He, he's done all of these mighty works in these towns, and they refuse to repent. And again, this, to us, this might seem a little bit incredible, but this is the way it's always been with Israel. You look through their entire history. You flip throughout the Old Testament, and you look at the history of Israel, and what is it constantly? They're complaining. Constantly, they're going against God. Constantly, they're disobeying God's law over and over and over. they got to be brought back to him uh, in repentance. And so really, their refusal of Jesus is nothing new. You look through the Old Testament again, and you see where God led the people out of Egypt. And so he, he drops all these plagues on Egypt, right? And so you have the, the boils and the gnats and the locusts and all of these different things that literally destroyed Egypt and just brought it right down to the ground. Yet he spared Israel. You remember that? As, he was, as they were coming out of Israel, they, they, the, the sea opened up and they walked through on dry ground. What did they immediately begin to do? They immediately begin complaining, right? We're hungry. We're thirsty. Uh, so God says, okay, well, I'm going to provide you some manna. And so they come out of their tents in the morning and there's literally bread on the ground. They take it and they bake it into different cakes and whatever. Remember Moses, he, they're complaining about water. And so Moses takes his staff and he goes up to a rock and he hits the rock and the rock splits open and all of this water pours out. Well, pretty soon they're complaining again because they don't want to eat bread all the time. So then God sends them quail. And it's just on and on. You go through their history and it's constant complaining. You look when they have kings and they're complaining about not having a king. They're complaining about the different circumstances that they're going through. On and on this people were, these people were complaining. Constant rebellion to the point where they were serving other gods. So God had done all these incredible miracles throughout their history and they constantly disobeyed Him. They constantly refused Him. And here in this morning section we have a lot of the same where Jesus had done many incredible, His most mighty deeds in the presence of these different towns, and they still refused to believe in Him, just as they had always done throughout their history. 
So in response to their refusal to repent, Jesus pronounces essentially a curse upon them. He says, woe to you. It's not really a word that we often use, woe, woe is me about something. But we don't usually use the word woe. This is a term that's used around a hundred times in the Bible. And it's a word that carries, again, the idea of cursing. It's a a highly negative word. You see it a lot in uh, the Old Testament, particularly. uh, Woe to the wicked, it will go badly for them. Woe to us, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. Even the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he says, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Cursing be upon me if I don't preach the good news of Christ. According to one source, the word woe is, is an expression of extreme displeasure. This is just something that bubbles out of you, just woe over something, or, or, over an intense moment of wickedness where you cannot stand what is going on. Woe. Even watching the news or something can, can provoke that within us. Even in just a few miles away from here in Oakland, the murder of several people and leaving a little girl, which is Whoa, why would you do just expressing an incredible displeasure? Woe to those who would molest a child. Woe to those who would beat their wives. It expresses that incredible displeasure over something very wicked. And so Jesus is displeased with these cities and says, Woe, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. All places where Jesus had done incredible works. He compares these cities to, to towns in the Old Testament, but particularly where we see in the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon were um, continuing on, but they were in the Old Testament known for their wickedness, or even a place like Sodom. These cities were known for their either hatred of God or hatred of Israel or love of wickedness. And so Jesus compares these towns that he had done these works in with these other towns that were known for their wickedness. So these towns that he's like Tyre and Sidon and and Sodom, all of these towns were acting according to their natural desires. They're, They're born in sin and so they're acting according to that. Yet we have these other cities like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum that had actually seen the works of Jesus and they refused to repent. And Jesus essentially says to all of them, if these other towns, if these towns in the Old Testament had seen my mighty works, they would have repented. So he initially says to Chorazin and Bethsaida that it is going to be more wicked. This is a great example. But he says to Chorazin and Bethsaida that it is going to be more bearable for the cities of Tyre and Sidon, those wicked cities, on the day of judgment than it is for Chorazin and Bethsaida because they saw Jesus' works and they refused to repent. After that, he turns to Capernaum. And he says to Capernaum, this, this town where Jesus had moved to, this is where Jesus lived. This is where Jesus really, his base of operations was. He had spent a lot of time here. And he looks at Capernaum and he says, it is going to be more bearable for Sodom, the city that God personally destroyed. You remember, we looked at it even a few weeks ago, where God literally rained down fire onto the city. He personally destroyed them for their wickedness. He says it's going to be more bearable for Sodom. Than it is for Capernaum, because Capernaum had refused Christ. 
Jesus says that the mighty works that had been done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, then they would have repented. So I want you to kind of think about that for a minute. And this is Sodom, a city known for its outrageous immorality. They would have repented if Jesus had gone there and done his mighty works there. Let me just throw in a, a quick side note. We think a lot of times we assume that those who are involved in the kinds of sin that Sodom was known for, like immorality or even more specifically homosexuality, that they are too far too gone for Christ to save them, but they are not. Christ states it here. That if his works had been done in the presence of that town that was known for their homosexuality, they would have turned and repented and trusted in Jesus. So who knows how God is going to use you and the lives of your friends, your co-workers, the people that you interact with, your family who are homosexuals or in some kind of gross immorality. If you demonstrate the love of Christ to them and the works of Christ to them and you're the hands and feet of Christ in their lives, who knows how God will use that to open the door for the gospel. Never think that your co-worker or your family member is too far too gone for Christ to save them. He states it here that if his, if his works had been done in their presence, they would have repented. And who knows how God will use you in the lives that you know who are in certain situations where you just think they're too far too gone. But back in our text, Jesus has re- rebuked the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. And now he turns his attention to the town of Capernaum. Again, Capernaum had received more gospel than all of the surrounding areas. And as such, Jesus was holding them personally responsible for denying the one who even chose to live among them. And so Jesus tells them what their end is going to be. He says, you will be brought down to Hades. Quite literally, people of Capernaum, you are going to hell for refusing me. As the one who will look at many and say on that day, depart from me. You workers of iniquity, Jesus denounces this city and tells them what their destination is for refusing him. As Spurgeon said, those who perish with salvation sounding in their ears, perish with a vengeance. The people who lived in these cities had seen and heard the Christ. And due to the fact that they had received so much revelation from Jesus and they had refused to act upon it, they would not be judged favorably. They had seen the Christ, they had seen his works, and they did not find the value in him that they were supposed to find, that they were supposed to see. I think in our society at large, or maybe even in the church, we assume that most of what Jesus had to say was kind and and happy, and and really nothing like this, right? Nothing like, you're going to be brought down to Hades. We just kind of had that automatic assumption. And then as we start going through Matthew, it's like, Man, does, does he ever say anything nice? Does he ever say anything that doesn't seem offensive? But here he is. He, he cannot stand being refused. He cannot be refused. If he is refu- refused, you will be brought down to those places. Jesus cannot overlook sin. He is holy. He is God in the flesh in these places, looking out at these cities saying, you have sinned. You must re. He can't overlook all of this sin. He can't overlook the fact that he was being blatantly refused by these cities. They had been exposed to so much of the truth, yet refused him. Jesus was not a universalist. Jesus did not think that in the end, everybody was going to make their way to heaven. 
These cities had greatly sinned for refusing to repent and trust in Christ as their Messiah, and they would be brought down to hell because of it. Jesus denounces the wicked. He denounces them, rebukes them, tells them that that is where they are going for refusing to trust in him, that it will not be favorable for them on the day of judgment, that it's going to be more bearable for the wicked of the wicked than it is for them, simply because they have refused Christ. And I think a lot of times we view refusing Christ as not the greatest deal. It, in some ways we just think, well, the things that we talked about, homosexuality or being an alcoholic or being outrageously immoral, those, those are the big sins. And, and, you know, refusing Christ, eh, you know, it just kind of is what it, no. You refuse Christ, that is it. That is a great, great wickedness, and it will not be bearable for those who do that on the day of judgment. But, seemingly in the next breath, or at least what Matthew records for us, look at verse 25. It gets a whole lot more comforting. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So this is beautiful. Jesus begins to pray. He begins speaking as God the Son to God the Father, co-equal, co-eternal members of the Godhead. And they're in conversation with one another. I mean, this is a the way it's been all the way in eternity past with a Godhead, which is that perfect relationship with one another. And here Jesus is speaking to the Father. Jesus thanks him for keeping the, the works and the teaching that he had done from the wise and from those who were esteemed of the world and instead revealing it to little children, revealing it to his disciples. Jesus says this was God the Father's gracious will to reveal Jesus not to those who were esteemed by the world, not to those who were considered great, but to those whom he calls little children. And let me, let me encourage you in this. If your eyes have been opened to the truths of the gospel, to the truths of Jesus, then this has been by the gracious will of God. He is gracious in the fact that he has done this for you. Let this comfort you. Let God the Father, let, the, let that fact that God the Father has set his sight upon you and revealed this truth to you as a little child. Let that encourage your soul that he has looked upon you with love and with grace. This was his, this was his gracious will. Thank him for it. Bless him for that truth. But look at verse 27 where we see some of this, more of this relationship between the Father and the Son. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So, a little bit of confusing, feels like a little bit of a, a merry-go-round, but Jesus is saying that everything has been handed over to Him. In other words, He has complete authority, and God the Father exclusively knows the Son, and the Son exclusively knows the Father. However, there are those whom the Son is able to reveal the Father to, and those, who, those are his disciples. So the Son of God is the divine path that leads to the Father. If you want to know the Father, you want to know God, then you must come to him by Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So he is that divine path that leads to God. Even now, those of 
us who are believers. We come to the Father because of what Christ has done and is doing for us even now. Recognizing that Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And so we have this incredible access to the Father through Jesus. This is, this is incredible. This is incredible grace that he has given to us. Jesus has revealed the Father to us. And because he has done this, we now have a relationship with him. And we'll have that for eternity. But this doesn't simply apply to us as believers, but those who would become believers. Jesus is still calling for souls to be saved and to come to him. Look at maybe some of the most encouraging verses within the book of Matthew in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This tells us so much about our King. This tells us so much about Christ. Come to me. Not, not all who are strong. Not, not all of those who have it all together. Not, of those, not all of those who have all the religious stuff all squared away. Come to me, all who are laboring. All who are burdened. This is personal. Jesus, Jesus isn't calling us and calling others in his gospel call to the nations to come to some kind of cold acceptance of the facts. He's, coming, he's calling us into his restful presence. He's calling all of those who are laboring and are carrying burdens in this life to come to him, to come to Jesus. Does that encourage you? Jesus wants you to come to him. But who are those who are heavy laden? I think it applies generally, certainly, to, to all. But specifically in this context, I think it applies to those who have been under the inflated version of the law that the religious leaders had just pumped up and placed onto these people within Israel. Matthew chapter 23 says this, They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. The law was being added to with man-made restrictions by the religious rulers, and it was becoming an incredible burden on the shoulders of the people. The Pharisees and the religious rulers of the day had laid such a burden onto the people. The law itself is completely daunting and impossible to bear. But the Pharisees were expanding and inflating this thing and making it a huge burden for the people. And yet they gave them no hope. And they gave them no, as, as uh, Matthew 23 says, they, didn't even, they weren't even willing to lift a finger to help with this massive burden. But Jesus says, come, come to me. All of you who are laboring and carrying heavy burdens, come and I will give you rest. Generally speaking, those who are heavy laden and those who work so hard to try to please God by their obedience, these are the people who are just heavy laden, people who are working so hard to try to please God, constantly wondering, is God pleased with me because of what I have done? kind of people who are desperately looking to God, trying to look good in God's eyes, constantly thinking that if I can just work harder, then God will be more pleased with me. If I could just do more good things, then God would be pleased with me. If I could follow more rules, then God would be pleased with me. But you and I can do all of those things, and it 
wouldn't matter. We're placing a burden even upon ourselves. And it's an unbearable burden to bear. This is not a burden that Jesus has placed upon you. He has not told you to go and to do more so that you'll look good in God's eyes. He has said, I have done all of the works of rest in me. As believers, I hope that when you consider your relationship with Jesus, that you don't feel this sense of burden, that you have some sort of taskmaster over you, whipping you. You got to wear this. You got to do this. You got to listen to this. You can't drink this. You can't touch this. All that is so added to. We inflate God's word like the Pharisees do. We inflate it and then we put it onto people as a burden that they themselves have to bear. And this is not what Jesus wants. He does not want to be a taskmaster over you. He wants to help bear your burdens. He wants to make things better for you. The sad reality is that the world views a relationship with Christ as a burden from the outside looking in. Absolutely. Oh, you're telling me I got to go to church every Sunday morning and it just zaps away every Sunday. A relationship with Jesus zaps away my Sunday morning. A relationship with Jesus zaps away part of my income. A relationship with Christ forces me to have to live according to rules and regulations. But those who have come to Christ and had that kind of relationship with Him, they say, not at all. Not at all. It's not at all that way. We, we come on Sunday morning, not, not because we're trying to look good in God's eyes or look good in the eyes of one another. We come to worship on Sunday morning because we want to honor and please and, and worship God because we love Him, not because it's a duty. Look at the relationship with a, a husband and wife. Well, well, gee, I don't bring you these flowers because it's duty. Here, it's my duty. Here's a dozen roses, right? Oh, I love you. And so here's the flowers. I love you. This is why I'm digging a stinking trench out here to make a pathway. I mean, that's why you do those kinds of things. Because you do it out of love. Jesus is not a burden to us. Jesus is our rest. He has given what we need to bear the burden. The truth is that those who are apart from Christ, those are the ones who are bearing a burden. Those are bearing a burden that they cannot bear. Those are bearing a burden that will bring them down to hell. So if you do not know Jesus this morning, I want to echo his call to come to him. All those who are striving in this life to look good in the eyes of God, to look good in the eyes of one another, laboring and being burdened over these things. None of this is going to matter. Simply come to Jesus and rest in Him. The great promise that we see in verse 28 is that all who are weary and heavy laden, all of those who are weary and heavy laden that come to Christ, they will have rest. That is a promise. That If you come to Jesus, that there is not a chance that you will be overlooked. You come to Jesus, there is not a chance that you will not find rest, that you will not find what you need from Him. Jesus promises that all of those who come to Him will find rest. But what's interesting is that Jesus says He will give us rest. But then immediately in verse 29, you see, take my yoke upon you. What, what does a yoke typically symbolize? It typically symbolizes more work. But that would contradict what Jesus has already said, wouldn't it? Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. But the interesting thing about this yoke is that although it usually symbolizes constraint and hard work, this is actually a merciful yoke. This is a yoke to help bear that burden. I'm sure some of you are familiar with yokes. 
uh, with animals, and you take two animals, put them side by each, and put the, the yoke on them, and then they, they pull whatever it is they're pulling. But then there's a, a human yoke, and you can put that on you, and, and it'll distribute the weight from to both shoulders so that you're not just carrying on one shoulder, you actually have it distributed, thus making it more easy to bear. So the yoke is the tool that Christ gives us to bear the burdens. As one commentator said, he is offering those who are finding their loads too hard to carry a new yoke, which far from adding to their oppression, will ease the burden and paradoxically paradoxically, will bring not further toil, but rest. Verse 29 further shows Jesus' desire that we learn of him, that he is gentle, and that he is lowly of heart, and that in this, we will find further rest. Further rest that, that plums all the way to the depths of your souls. And isn't this what the entire world is searching for? Don't you look out at the world and just see the opposite of rest? Don't you see unrest all through? You just interact with a family member who doesn't know Jesus. Just no rest there. You look across the different parts of the country. It just constantly, Our own country, the people are constantly... Not in rest. It's just constant work. Constant pushing towards something else. Constantly trying to attain a certain status or whatever. But the rest that is found in Jesus plumped all the way to the depths of your soul. You find rest in Jesus, you'll never need to find another place for it. People are constantly looking for this one thing that will give them rest. To calm that storm inside of their souls. And Jesus is clear that the rest that comes is from himself from this gentle and humble Christ whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. You might be thinking, like I've thought many times in my own life, that I've, I've come to Christ. I, I've accepted Him. But man, I'm, I'm tired. It's not easy. But what I think you need to realize is that although we do find our initial rest in Christ, and that Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. We find that initial rest when we have trusted in Christ. But we find continual rest as we continue learning of him. Learning of the gentle and meek Christ that we have. The growing weary in Christ is tied to, to a lack of awe in him. That he, that he has lost his luster. Maybe kind of like these cities that we had initially looked at, where it's kind of like flash in the pan. Oh, wow, Jesus can do all of these great works, but then pretty soon we just kind of turn away. and that It's not as amazing as it once was. But if you come to Christ, you will find rest. And if you continue to learn of Christ, you will find continual rest for your soul. But if you're here and you don't know, Jesus, and you've never even come to him in the first place, I would remind you of the terrible repercussion of the town of Capernaum for refusing Christ. That wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and all those who refuse Christ walk right through that wide gate, get on that wide road, and head right to destruction. The end is eternal fire. But to those who hear Christ's voice saying, come, come to me, all you weary ones. Those who follow after that voice and walk through the narrow gate and walk on that narrow road will find life. You've probably heard or used the phrase that there's no rest for the weary. But there is rest for the weary. And that rest is found in Jesus. And if you don't know Christ, come to him and you will find rest. If you have known him, come to him. 
Learn of him and you will find rest that will plumb all the way to the depths of your soul. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge them or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242-0126 or email us at wcfmaine at gmail.com. Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship, 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine, 04363. Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.